Well, it is so good to have you here, uh, here in the room. Those of you who are joining us online, thank you for being with us today. As we gather together today to celebrate the greatest event in all of human history. And when I say that, there is zero exaggeration, zero hyperbole. What we celebrate, celebrate today, this event, is the greatest event of all human history. It absolutely eclipses every other event. There has been no other scientific discovery. There, there has been no technological advancement, no medical breakthrough, no architectural engineering achievement that comes close to the impact of this event. They all pale in comparison to the event we celebrate. And this event that we celebrate is more beautiful and more meaningful and more significant than any artistic expression that has ever been. What we celebrate it includes a blood-stained cross, a rolled-away stone, an empty grave, and a risen Lord. It can be summed up in two words, the resurrection. The resurrection. And I am so glad that you're here today as we celebrate this. This last Wednesday, I was uh, with our Bright Discoveries Preschool singing with them. I do this on a monthly basis down there. And we have a great time singing the classics deep and wide and Zacchaeus and such. And so um, I, was, I stopped and I said, okay. Who knows what Sunday is? Hands shot up. Easter. And I said, great. I said, who knows what happened on Easter? Hands shot up. Started. We get to look for eggs. Yes. We get candy. Yes. We get baskets. Yes. One little girl just, I said, yeah. Jesus was born. I said, you're reborn. Yes. And I couldn't get the answer to my question, so I looked over at Melody, the teacher, and I'm like, and she said, we haven't got that far in the story. We just got him dead. <laughs> okay. That helps. See, you know, this story, if you just get him dead but stop there, there are questions that will never be answered. But he doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop. If it stopped there, he would just be another leader from history that lived and taught and was good and died and was in a tomb and there'd be a grave marker and maybe an epitaph on that to not only mark where he's uh, laid, but also to maybe summarize his life. And you think about epitaphs, these little things on, on tombstones of, of what they say and who chooses those. And the person that died, they say, this is what I want or the family. I want to read to you some, some epitaphs and it, some of them are a little bit Curious, some of them are odd, some of them are hilarious. Robert Frost, the poet, on his tombstone it says, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. I don't even know what that means, but he wrote poetry about it. Ludolf von Soylen, who is a mathematician, the first person to ever calculate the value of pi to 35 decimal points, on his tombstone, 3.14592653589793. Shall I go on? 35 decimal places. Dorothy Parker, I love this, on her tombstone says, Excuse my dust. <laughs> when Rodney Dangerfield was buried, you'd never want to be buried next to Rodney. On his tombstone says, There goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Some of you are old enough to remember Merv Griffin. Okay, yeah, that's, uh, glad you're awake this morning. <laughs> on Merv Griffin's, uh, the Merv Griffin show, on his, on his tombstone, he says, I will not be right back after this message. <laughs> there was a man named Michael Luther who was obsessed with Pac-Man, and his family put on his tombstone, game over. 
Mel Blanc, who is the voice of Looney Tunes, voice of over 400 different cartoon characters, including the lovable little porky pig that ended all the cartoons. On his tombstone, it says, that's all, folks. And I wonder, if Jesus had a tombstone, what would be the epitaph? But you don't have to wonder too long, because we know. And it wasn't on a tombstone, but it was on, from a grave marker. And it wasn't etched in stone, it was spoken. At his grave that morning, there were these words, and this would be his epitaph found in, in uh, Matthew 28. He is not here, he has risen just as he said. That's what's on his grave marker. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said, 11 words. 10 of them are monosyllable words. But these 11 words, these 12 syllables, these are what people have celebrated for 2,000 years. And today, all across this globe, there are literally billions and billions of people that are gathered to sing songs about this man, about this event, about this phrase, to celebrate, to look at scriptures, and to hear sermons about this event, just as we are. One of the earliest recorded sermons that we have after this event, this came up. This was one of the points. Peter, who had been with Jesus, who had seen him after the resurrection, he's given a sermon in Jerusalem, and he says this in his sermon. We find this in Acts chapter 2. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He's like, this isn't new news to you. You saw this. You've heard about this. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And this line, but God... But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Let me read that again. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's a turn in the story. Some of you are familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, wrote those things. He created a word, he coined a word, he made up a word, which is actually encouraging to me because I do this all the time, <laughs> usually on accident. I don't think what you say is what you mean. Okay. He made up a word that is, describes this phrase. The word is a word that you've probably not heard, but you're going to hear a few times today. And, and I want you to know this word because you can impress your family and friends this afternoon. The word is eucatastrophe. Say that with me. Eucatastrophe. Now, at first, it sounds like a judgment of my life, like you're a catastrophe. That's not what it means. It's a combination of two Greek words. The, the one word is catastrophe, and not like disaster. In classical literature, especially like in the tragedies, like Shakespeare's tragedies, the catastrophe was the end point where the, the, the final demise of the main character comes and the plot unravels. That's, that was called the catastrophe. That was at the end of a story, when it, when it all kind of fell apart. But Tolkien added the word you, E-U. It's a Greek word that means good. Like it's the good catastrophe, the you catastrophe. And the whole idea is that it's a good unraveling. And, and if you've read any of, of his writings, you know that he puts this in his stories. When things seem like there's no hope, it's going to end here, this is the end of it all. And then something happens, there's a turn of events at the end of a story to somehow ensure that the inevitable, terrible doom that's on its way is avoided by the hero. Now, this isn't just in literature. Some of you are old enough to remember November 9th, 1989. 
there was a U catastrophe in Berlin where a story that was horrible and terrible of this inevitable doom suddenly took a turn and the wall came crashing down. And J.R.R. Tolkien, who was, by the way, a follower of Jesus, said the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest catastrophe of all. And some of you are saying, well, well, that's great, but I'm not into elves and dwarfs and orcs and wizards and hobbits. That's all your Middle Earth weirdness. I'm not into all that. Okay, okay, got that. Tolkien was a really good friend with a man named C.S. Lewis. And Tolkien was following Jesus. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And, and in, his, in this relationship, Tolkien would talk to C.S. Lewis. And he says, why is it that we love stories so much? Fairy tales, fantasies, myths, legends. Why is it? He says, the reason is because these stories all point to an underlying truth that we want to be true, to be real, even though we know the stories aren't. And in that concept of that, of that conversation between Tolkien and Lewis, Timothy Keller wrote these words, and he said this. He said, Beauty and the Beast tells us there's a love that can break us out of the beastliness that we have created for ourselves. Sleeping Beauty tells us we're in a kind of sleeping enchantment, and there's a noble prince who can come and destroy it. We hear these stories, and they stir us because deep inside our hearts believe or want to believe that these things are true. Death should not be the end. We should not lose our loved ones. Evil should not triumph. Our hearts sense that even though the stories themselves aren't true, the underlying realities behind the stories are somehow true or ought to be. But our minds say no. And then we come to Jesus. And at first glance, it looks like the other legends. Here's a story about someone from a different world who breaks into ours and has miraculous powers and can calm the storm and heal people and raise people from the dead. And then his enemies turn on him and he is put to death. And it seems like all hope is over. You catastrophe. But finally he rises from the dead and saves everyone. We read that and we think, hmm, another great fairy tale indeed. It looks like one more story pointing to these underlying realities. Jesus Christ is not one more lovely story pointing to these underlying realities. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. Jesus Christ has come from that eternal supernatural world that we sense is there, that our hearts know is there, even though our heads say no. He punched a hole between the ideal and the real, the eternal and the temporal, and he came into our world. There is an evil sorcerer in this world, and we are under enchantment. And there is a noble prince who has broken the enchantment. And there is a love from which we will never be parted. And we will indeed fly someday and we will defeat death. Jesus is the reality. That's the catastrophe: A blood-stained cross, a rolled-away stone, an empty tomb, and a risen Lord. Jesus Christ is. And for 2,000 years, people like you, intelligent people, thinking people, educated people, have staked their thoughts, their hopes, their faith, their salvation, their purpose, their life, and their eternity on this event. There was a man named Paul. He was a skeptic. He didn't believe it until he met this Jesus alive, and it changed everything for him. And he begins to write, this isn't just a fairy tale. In fact, in a letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth, he said, if Christ has not been risen, he does this if then. If, if this is just a fairy tale, if this is just a legend and a myth, then man, everything we're doing is a waste of time. 
our, our faith is futile and we're dead in our sins. We're not forgiven. And once we die, it's all over. We're worm food. It's done. And he concludes this way in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So for hundreds of years in gatherings like this on Easter, there is a call and response that followers of Christ have done based on this word. And I'm going to do this and we're going to do it until we get it right. <laughs> he is risen. Man, first shot right out of the gate. You got it right. He is risen indeed. That's the you catastrophe. That's the greatest you catastrophe. The twist in the story, the good ending, that the inevitable doom has been avoided because Jesus comes back from the dead, not just for him, but for all of us. What I want to do today for a shorter than normal amount of time for me, you're welcome. I want to talk about why this isn't just an event from history. And isn't just a story, but this you catastrophe is a personal experience and how it impacts each one of us. So let's look at this. All four of the gospel writers talk about this Sunday morning when this happened. In Mark, it says this. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Now, for some of you, right there means it's a bad story. You're not a morning person. You don't do anything very early on the first day of the week. You, you like to get up at the crack of noon. This is not a good story for you the way it starts off, but it's very early. Some of you are thinking, why couldn't it have been Tuesday at 4.30? And you know, it could have been. I, I suppose God can do whatever he wants. But very early on the first day of the week, I, I think there's some significance in that, that it's very early, like at the beginning of a new day. It's the first day of the week, Sunday. It's the beginning of a new week. And what we see here is not just a chronological time stamp, but it's a picture of what God is doing on a greater scale. It's a new start. It's a new start. Things are going to be different now. On this day, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, he said on that Sunday morning, God starts a new project. This is one of the things that's unique about Christianity. There is a time and a place and a day when it started. It didn't just kind of evolve over the years. On, on Saturday, there was no human power that could start Christianity. Their, their, their Messiah was dead. On Sunday, there was no power in hell that could stop it. On that day, it started a new project. But this is how it applies to us. Because we need a new start as well. This is the one thing that you and I have in common. And right now you're saying, you don't even know me. That's right, I don't. But I know that we have this in common. You and I both. We make mistakes. We fail. We blow it. The Bible calls it sin. And now you're saying, that's why I don't like to come to church, the judgment and all the... No, this is not a judgment statement. Your family will back me up on this one. <laughs> this is an observation of human nature. We sin and we say, okay, now and then, and then we start trying to... Well, you know, I, okay, I know I'm not perfect. Listen, no one ever, ever accused you of being perfect. Oh, okay, well, but I'm not as bad as that. You know, okay, yeah, okay, right, we'll get onto this scale thing. And you can see the evil, and you can see the sin, and you can see all the brokenness in others, but you're not so bad as I... Listen, when we are honest with ourselves, I mean really honest, and we begin to see how we have always lived our lives, and we're honest about our pride, maybe about some of our prejudices, we're honest about our self-centeredness, our greed, our habits, our lust, our anger, our bitterness, our vengeance. 
our addictions, the stuff that we've done our whole life, if we're really honest, we'll recognize this truth. That sin in our lives is not a surface wound. We are all profoundly broken. And sin in our lives has built-in consequences. And some of you know that so well. I do. Some of it is within you, the guilt, the shame, the, the regret, the, the heartache that you've created from your own choices and actions. The breakdown in relationships, the trust, the, the, the physical consequences, whatever it might be. And so here we are in this own living tragedy of the inevitable doom that we are guilty and we stand before a holy God. And it doesn't look good for any of us. And then the catastrophe happens. A twist in the story. Paul writes this to that church in Corinth. And he says this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance. The first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That Jesus takes on our sin, takes on our shame, takes on our guilt, takes our punishment for us, the you catastrophe, and we avoid the inevitable doom. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. In Romans 4, it says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, we can have this new start, like early on the first day of the week. It's a brand new start because there's a blood-stained cross and a rolled-away stone and an empty tomb and a risen Lord. That's the catastrophe, not just in human history, but for us personally. If we just stopped there, that would be enough reason to celebrate forever that we can have a new, a new start, that we can be forgiven, we can be, have our shame and our guilt taken care of and not have to deal with that punishment because Christ has. We could stop there, but he doesn't. There's even more of this twist to the plot. You know, on that very first Easter, when the women, they're the first ones to go to the tomb. The men were sleeping in probably. <laughs> the women go to the tomb, and they're not all dressed in pastels and having Easter baskets and all that. I mean, you would think their response would be they get to the empty tomb. They're like, this is sweet. High five. He's risen indeed. Let's get home. We got brunch to do and eggs to hide. That is not their response at all. Look, all four, all four gospel writers point out something that seems odd that morning. Matthew says this. So the women hurried away from the tomb afraid and yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples. Those two emotions, afraid and filled with joy, the joy we get, but, but afraid, this is like, this is the best ever. Mark puts it this way. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Luke says they bow their head in fear. They're terrified. Now, you could build this case, and please give me grace here as I build this case. You could say, well, okay, maybe it was dark and they were scared. And, and, and there were a few women, but they didn't have any men with them to help protect it. Not that they're unable, but they're alone, and, and they're at, at a grave, which is a little scary anyway. And, and then some, there was like this stranger there. I mean, I, I can see why they're afraid. Dark, grave, alone, stranger. 
That's not the issue. Because later, it wasn't just the women. It was some of the men who had seen Jesus and believed, and it wasn't dark, and it wasn't at a grave, and they weren't alone. They were together. In fact, John says this in John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of the first day. Now we're later in the evening. It's not early in the morning. It's not dark. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, they're not alone. With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. I love this. Listen, if death can't take you out and the grave can't hold you down and a sealed tomb can't keep you in, a locked door is not really going to do anything for you. (laughs) He's right there in their midst and he says to them, ta-da! No. He says to them, what's wrong with you weaklings? I told you I was coming back. Why are you afraid? No. He comes to them and he says four words. Peace be with you. I know you're afraid. I don't think Jesus even had to say those words because he stood among them and his very presence says, I am with you. The Prince of Peace. The one that says, the peace I give you is not like the peace of this world. It's the powerful presence that's right there with Jesus that he brings us peace. You have the presence of Jesus. You will have peace with you. Now, let's just be honest. We live in a weird, weird time, a scary time, an anxious time. I mean, with pandemics and wars and the economy and the political division and, and the lack of morals and, and things fall. I mean, it's the uncertainty about the future, your own health concerns, relational issues. Some of you live with a great deal of fear. Some of you are very anxious today. I mean, you look good right now, but inside you are filled with all this what if, and I don't know, and I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. And can I just push pause here and say, next week we're starting a brand new series for the rest of the spring, looking at some of the selected Psalms. And next week specifically, we're going to talk about anxiety and stress and fear. Please do not miss that for those of you especially who are dealing with this. But, but we live with this fear. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, there's a you catastrophe. I am with you. And I will bring you peace. You say, well, that's, that's fine, but I still have all these circumstances and, 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 and I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm suffering in all this stuff and it, it's like this dead end and it's, I feel like I'm in a dark season and I don't know how this, it seems insurmountable. And Jesus says, I understand that. And I'm with you. Because I suffered too. I was crucified. And I hit a dead end too called death. And I was in a dark tomb, so I understand a dark season. And when it seems insurmountable, there was a stone with no latch on the inside. I understand that. But the risen one has overcome. And there is power with Jesus. Not only does he say, well, I walk with you through your difficulties and bring you peace, but I have the power. Anyone need a little resurrection power today? Paul said this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then he continues on, he says, and the fellowship and sharing with his suffering, that that we suffer with this together. Jesus doesn't leave us 
I want to know his power. He talks about that power in Ephesians when he writes these words, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the power for us who believe. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the resurrection power that we can live in. When you begin to understand this about this reality, about this catastrophe, that when Jesus comes, it's a new day. The guilt and the shame and all of that is taken care of. And his presence goes with us and his peace and his power. You say, no wonder we celebrate this every year. It's an annual tradition. Why not? Well, then I want to push it one step further. This catastrophe is not just for a once-a-year annual celebration. It's something we ought to live in every day. Peter wrote these words. He said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us, us, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given that to us. Yeah, he gave it to Jesus, but he's given that to us. It's a living hope, not just a someday when you die in the sweet by and by hope. There's that. He's talking about now, present tense, today and tomorrow. And every day that is called today, it's this hope. I was given some thought to this whole idea of of a living hope. And, And I just, my mind goes in odd, some of you know this, odd places and I try to figure these things out. And, and there were these thoughts that came to me. Now, listen, What I'm preparing to share with you may not be biblical. It may not be accurate. It might not even be um, orthodox. It's purely boblical. (laughs) But this was a thought that came to me. There's a few pieces, so hang with me. One is this. This greatest catastrophe is that Jesus died, and then he came back to life. That's it. Throughout Scripture, there are times when Death is spoken of using the word sleep. And I think part of it is to send this this message to us that that death is not the end of it. That our days here on this earth is not the end of the story. And so there's times when it talks about those who have fallen asleep. Like in Acts, it says, David served served the Lord in his generation, and then he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. That means not like some of you are doing right now. It means he died. He fell asleep, and he was buried. Paul writes, I think it's in Thessalonians, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Again, he's not talking about, he's talking about those who've died. Do not grieve like men who have no hope. So when you think about that, the the word sleep, the concept of death and sleep are kind of used interchangeably in the scripture. So with that, in this greatest catastrophe, in death, on the cross, on that Friday, Jesus slept. In death, but on Sunday, he awoke in life. Hold that thought. That's the greatest catastrophe. Throughout Scripture, God gives his people reminders of things that he has done. Um, kind of a marker that you can go back to. When he made a covenant with Noah, he says, I'm going to give you a reminder. I'm going to give you a rainbow. It's going to be a reminder of, of what I've done. Uh, th- there were times in, in uh, like when they crossed into uh, the promised land, he said, get 10 stones. 
12 stones from, from the Jordan River and set them up as a, as a reminder of my, my faithfulness. The festivals that they had every year, they were to remind, Passover was to remind them of what God had, these reminders to call back to mind. Jesus did this. Whenever you take this bread and this cup, do this, he says, in remembrance of me. So I got to thinking about how God gives us these, these visible, tangible pictures, reminders of what he's done. It's a second thought. And then I thought, what if? This is where this may be like, I may get to heaven someday and God may say, you remember that whole point you made on Easter Sunday? Yeah, that wasn't it. <laughs> but God created this world and all that is within it. The earth belongs to him. And every fall, there's kind of a, a death that takes place. The leaves fall, the flowers fade, the grass withers. We go into this cold, dark winter slumber, this sleep, this death, that all of creation sleeps throughout the winter, but then in the spring, it wakes up again to new life. And what if, what if that isn't just a seasonal thing? What if our divine creator created the world to have this rhythm so that for who knows how many thousand years beforehand, that the death and the sleeping of winter and the waking of spring would be a foreshadowing of a greater sleeping and waking that would happen on a Sunday morning. And what if from that point on, from that great, great catastrophe, that now every year all of creation preaches a sermon to remind us that there was one who slept and died in the cold, dark winter of death but on Sunday morning, came back to life. And that God has hardwired this into creation to preach a sermon, all of nature proclaims Jesus Christ is risen. Now, wait a second, one step further. And the way that God has created us, our bodies necessitate that every night we go to sleep. Different amounts of time, but we all sleep. It happens. And then in the morning, we wake up. Some of you look like death, <laughs> but you wake up to new life. And what if, what if that wasn't just a part of the way our bodies work? What if God hardwired that in us so that whether we recognize it or not, every single day, our body preaches a message to us that there's a time of sleep, but it is woken up with new life. And what that means is, every morning I can say, I rise from my bed because Christ rose from the dead. <laughs> and every morning, every morning I wake up and I say, it's a new day. It's a new start. My sins are forgiven. I've got a clean slate. And I walk in the presence and the peace and the power of Jesus Christ. And I get to live that way. And it's a living hope. So today is a new day. To live in that. Isn't that what it says in Jeremiah? When Jeremiah writes in, in Lamentations, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Today and every day is the day we say, I rise from my bed, Christ rose from the dead. What if we started saying that every morning when we woke up? What if we started approaching every single day in the life and the power and the peace and the presence of Jesus Christ, the risen one? 
You see, there was a blood-stained cross, and there was a rolled-away stone, and there was an empty tomb, and there's a risen Lord. That is the greatest catastrophe, and it's not just in history. It's how we can live every single day. And we get eternity thrown in. Paul says this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection. I'm the new start. I'm the presence. I'm the peace. I'm the power. I'm the living hope. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. You see, that's why this is more than just a story, more than just an event in history, more than just a religious celebration. This is the personal daily experience that we were created to live in. It's because of a blood-stained cross, a rolled-away stone, an empty tomb, and a risen Lord. The catastrophe of all catastrophes. That Sunday. John Ortberg wrote this. He said, on Sunday, a stone got rolled away. On Sunday, death lost its sting. Grave lost its victory. On Sunday, hell was defeated. Death was dethroned. Darkness was derailed. The devil was demotivated. On Sunday, the tomb was emptied and hope got fulfilled. On Sunday, faith was vindicated, the prophets were validated, the soldiers were aggravated, and the disciples were animated. On Sunday, sin lost, shame died, hope, hope soared, and love won. On Sunday, you got something beyond yourself to live for, something beyond your life to die for, something beyond your death to hope in after you die. This is therefore the central proclamation of the greatest victory over the darkest enemy by the noblest hero for the loftiest cause in all of human history. If anything in this sorry dark world is worthy of celebration, it is that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That's the you catastrophe. And to hold on to that and to base your life and your faith and your purpose and your salvation and your eternity on this is not living a fairy tale story. It's living the resurrection life. And that's what we are called and invited to live. I want to do this. For some of you, maybe it clicked today and you're like, that makes sense. Maybe today's your day. I'm just going to invite everybody to just bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you want to receive and experience and live in that resurrection life, I'm just going to invite you to pray. And you can, God knows your heart. These aren't magic words. Say something along this line, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your death for your resurrection, for the, for the twist in the story. And I want that. I, I want to live that resurrection life. So I pray that you would forgive me for my sins. That you'd take away my shame and my guilt. Thank you for taking my punishment. And I want to live in your presence. I want to be surrounded with your peace. I want to walk in your power. I want to dwell in a living hope. So I invite you 
to be my forgiver, my friend, my Lord, and I want to walk with you in that resurrection power. Amen. You know, if, if you prayed something like that, all of heaven is rejoicing. And it's just the beginning. It's a start of a new day, a new week, a new life, a new reality. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love for you on the way out to grab one of these new believer packets. Uh, Pastor Kip will be back in the, in the commons. Tell someone about it. Get involved in a church. We'd love to have you as a part of Cornwall. If this isn't the church for you, I, I get that. Find a church that is based on the word of God and lifts up the name of Jesus and join with other people who are living in this resurrection life. There is nothing better that this catastrophe, this good unraveling, turns the story so that we can live in victory.